Hello, I'm Cherie Hoysler and welcome to All The Things, a podcast that offers nourishment of a particular kind, the kind that is filled with slow-cooked conversations for those curious as to how others go about navigating this thing we call life, and also a little bit about what to eat along the way. It's All The Things because it's All The Things. My guest today is Troy Woodcroft, actor, dancer, singer and all-round gorgeous soul. I've known Troy for over 20 years and have cheered from the sidelines throughout so many stages of his performance career, when things went his way and also when they didn't. His ability to take big life lessons from his big life is so inspiring and if you're in the performing arts or know someone who is, I'm hoping Troy's experience will give you another perspective on what it takes to ride the wild wave of a performer's life. Grab yourself a cup of tea and please enjoy this very raw and real conversation with Troy. Troy Woodcroft, thank you so much for being, do you know this actually, you are the very first podcast guest I've ever had. Oh my goodness. I, uh, I'm privileged. I'm honoured. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> it's going to be fine. So um, <laughs> I just wanted to um, run back in time a little bit because obviously you and I have known each other for some years now. Uh, but what I just wanted a couple. to do, just a couple, what I wanted to do was just go back to those early days, A, because I know you have some excellent stories of those early days, but also because I wanted to give everyone a chance to understand how you came to be this this quadruple threat that you are, you know, this this actor, dancer, singer, handsome as heck kind of guy. So um, if we go back to uh, where, like where do you want to start it, VCA or...? How early? When when did you I feel mean, this desire to get into the performing arts? Um, that I think it's interesting to go right back, right? I, I would just I was teaching a dance class today at um, at a private school here on the Gold Coast, and so I'm really enjoying at the moment going into that world because these kids are they're year sixes; they still have innocence um the last stages of right um before they become completely opinionated on whether how much they dislike or like something um and i was talking about that with them today the origin of where it all came from for me so they can find some kind of relation for themselves right and i think it's interesting to go all the way back to that because i was fortunate enough to have a have this thing whatever this thing is this uh, desire to, this inspiration, we'll call it, um, from just a re- as, as young as I can remember. And I talked about that with these students today. What, when do you remember feeling that way about music? That was the origin of which I place it upon. Um, it, music, right? And having this <clears throat> um, connection with it, it knowing that, um, hearing it and it making me feel a certain way and we'll call that inspiration, right? Not Maybe not knowing that that's what it was at such a young age, but I throw it all the way back to, I want to say four, four, five, three, four, five. Um, 
so yeah, let's start there. I had that, right? And I knew that I had this thing I loved. And it was also a place for me to go and escape. Um, please stop me if I'm ranting here. No, um, but I love I, this. Because none of, so none of your family were dancing, singing, acting. You were the, the first no. one in the so family. I, you just were yeah, this Yeah, so I grew up in Darwin. I grew up in Darwin, right? Uh, my father was a builder. He moved to Darwin. They moved to Darwin um, to rebuild Darwin after Cyclone Tracy in the 70s. Um, and then later on, much later, because I'm so young, um, <laughs> um, my brother and myself were born. And my dad came from that world. He became a football coach. Uh, my mum worked for the government on the switchboard back then. And there was me and my brother, my dad and and my brother and I all went to my dad's football, right? Nightcliff, our football team. And even from then, I liked the, I liked being in a group of people. And I remember being very young and being a part of that. But I couldn't stop doing cartwheels. I naturally just had this. I couldn't stop moving. So, you know, the cartwheels were happening and my poor father was like, God, my son is like doing cartwheels. This is football. So, I, you know, it started back then. <clears throat> and uh, But I knew I was different. So getting back to the music thing, I remember I, I, I would ask for these things, I'm sure, but I had a, my own little tape deck um, in my bedroom that I would play music on by myself in my room and it would uplift me and it would move me. And so that's where it started. Um, and, yeah, I was a unicorn in my family. <clears throat> they were amazing. They were really supportive in letting me explore that and what that was. I mean, my own, asking my dad, um, I knew, and here's the crazy thing too, right, this thing that we'll call inspiration that I had from such a young age, I knew that it, I wanted to do things with it and explore it, being in dance and in music and in acrobatics. And I thought that uh, my way of getting this thing that I wanted was through my parents, was to, to, which was to dance, uh, would be going about the way of asking if I could do gymnastics because that was a sport, right? So I figured my dad taught sport and if I went about it through a sport, I could then navigate it into dance, but we'd take baby steps to get them there. So it started from there and they were great. I went to gymnastics from age six <clears throat> and then, and then by seven, I was like, great. Now I can ask them because our family friends, uh, all of their daughters did ballet at this one place in Darwin through a teacher called Bev Cowan. And, uh, and I asked if I could start that there because they did it. And so why can't I? Well, that was, it was a thing. It was um, a thing. Yeah. It was a thing because my mum and, and obviously it brought up conversations amongst mine and all the other parents, right? Um, our son wants to do ballet, wants to dance. Um, do we let him? Was wow. the conversation. Because I remember it being a thing. I remember we were traveling around Australia driving around Australia all in the car together and uh, and visiting family friends around the way. So we'd go straight up the middle from Darwin all the way down to Adelaide, um, to Kingston, where my mum's side of the family was from, and then make our way up north and back home via, you know, Sydney, Queensland, and all, Melbourne, Sydney, Victoria, pardon me, 
um, Queensland and then back home. And along that route, I remember them asking, it was a conversation that happened in most of the cities of what do we do? Do we let our son go to ballet? And I kid you not, every city, it was such an awesome thing to witness at such a young age, but everybody was in in pro for me. They were all like, of course you let your son do ballet. What a wonderful thing. And so they did. And so from age seven, um, sorry, this is a really long answer, isn't it? No, this is brilliant. It's a podcast. We do the chatting. Um, but, just, but just quickly, we've probably, I want to know. We've so, probably lost all our listeners. No, no. We're, we're trying to gain them along the route, along the way. Okay, I'll, um, do, I'll so do better. I just want to know, though, were you the first boy to ever go to this ballet school in yes. Darwin? Wow. I was the I was the only boy in Darwin that that went to ballet. There was one other kid that I found, this one other unicorn. Oh my god. So interesting. <laughs> I'm saying oh my god because I'm remembering that he wore a pink unitard. So, I mean he was he was a let's just say he was a unicorn. There was one other guy that went to some other ballet school in Darwin for a brief moment. But apart from that, I was the stayer. I, I, I went. I was the only. I think at that time, you know, in the eighties, the only sure. kid doing ballet. So yes, in my entire school, the only boy. And then in a Stedfords and in competitions later on, competing with all of the other dance schools, still the only only, only guy. And you just loved it. Like you went there and you felt like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted or were you feeling a little bit ostracised because you were the only guy or none of that played a part? None of it. None of it played a part. There's that innocence that I was, that I brought up earlier that you still have at that age and you don't care. You know, it's not even whether you care or not about what other people think because you get taught that, right? It's, it's, I, just knew this thing made me feel wonderful and that it was my zero. It was my not the most normal thing for me to feel. Um, and, and so that was that for me. I mean, the social element is just so what you learn socially as a boy or as a kid or as a girl or as anyone going to dance school and getting to do this thing that you love because it's play, I guess it's kind of different from what it was for me initially, different from sport um, in the sense that there was room for me to be creative and create things, yeah. which I think, I, and I guess I guess you do that in sport as well, but it's, it's all set to a technique, right, which also, ballet is also, which later on I learned. But for me initially and in my ballet school in Darwin, it wasn't rigid. It was a place for play and my teacher would put music on and let me improvise. And so, you know, what that does for a kid, I mean, it's amazing. And um, it's creativity, it's um, responsibility of coming up with something, being trusted by somebody that you can do that thing. So many yeah. great things, so many great, great things to learn as a kid, you know, while your brain's still forming, right? Absolutely. And you mentioned before that it was also escapism for you. What what do you mean by that? I guess the escapism from the negative side of what that is, right, and being a unicorn. 
in a mostly male dominant role. You know, we were all males and there was my mom. So, you know, I got backlash from my brother, who in turn was the most protective of me for it, mind you, later on in, you know, in school. Um, but again, I was in that, you know, I hadn't been taught any of that. It was innocent and, still and it was pure really, love. Yeah, you're still really young at this point as well. That's a mm. lot to I was teaching them. Through. Yeah, I <laughs> bet you were. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you're doing gymnastics, you're doing ballet, you're standing out for the fact that you're forging this path for yourself because of some kind of internal fire that you've got going on. But at what stage did you start to, how did the audition come about for Victorian College of the Arts? Because you were so young when you ended mm. up there. Um, yeah, it's really cool, all these things. I often think about these things because there's, you know, often these people that come externally into place and they play a major part in your life's path, right? And um, we, I was... My dance teacher, Bev, had, you know, said to my mom, expressed that the fact that I was going to do this. She was like, he's going to do this. So I think she'd been planting those seeds from a, a young age to my parents, um, uh, you know, that, that this was going to be a thing. But she also had brought out other teachers into, from interstate and done workshops. So she was just really amazing in, in the parts that she played for you know for me anyway in in i don't know in play in 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 my life's path um this woman came out from the mcdonald college and she was doing workshops in darwin and and bev had said to my folks that this was happening and that i should go and do this class i went and did this class and then this teacher who taught at the McDonald College in Sydney, which was one of these performing arts schools, right? They produced these people that are going to do this as a career. She had come out and she, I was, I had no proper formal training. You know, Bev tried. I, we, I learned a syllabus. I learned an RAD syllabus in ballet, but it was, my joy was in the creation of making these routines and numbers, right? So she let me go to town there. It, so it was heavier in that, creative element more than the discipline and the and the but this woman saw that I had the potential for this discipline. And so it's kind of like that movie Billy Elliot, right? As cheesy as it sounds. This woman really? went, this kid has got this thing. He is going to do it. We need to get him out of Darwin and get him down south to audition then for McDonald College. In doing that, the McDonald College was a really expensive school. Um, you know, for my folks, I think the tuition was, you know, in the 80s, 20, uh, 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 not, this is the 90s now, tw around $20,000 a, a year. Um, and it was a lot for my folks to pay for on top of my accommodation and all the other things oh. and flights home. So it was just kind of like, look, they would have done it. But my dance teacher also said, Bev, again, said, why don't we audition him, go to VCA in Melbourne? because this is a, a government-funded school um, and I hear it's the, the best. Um, and, you know, thank, thank the fateful stars that it is and, and was the best because that's the school I auditioned for. My mum flew me down. 
it's amazing. Like it's truly like that movie, Billy Elliot. As cheesy as that sounds. And uh, and she flew me down. It was beautiful. I have such tender memories of these type moments, right? Because it was like just this nurturing thing of a parent nurturing me and my this dream that I had at such a young age. It's really cool. A lot of kids, it's cool, right? A lot of kids don't have that thing. Um, and now I'm older, I realize how fortunate I was to have that thing. Anyway, um, I did the audition in Melbourne. I came back to at this stage. I was I was twelve. I was in my first year of high school. Yes, I was because I was young in my class too. I was younger. I was one of the young kids in my class. I think everyone was thirteen. I was twelve. Anyway, and um, and I remember sitting in class. It was towards the end of the year eight, and I remember seeing from out the window. This is another tender story, so um, I'll try and be short. But seeing my dad's car pull up on the oval outside the window of my classroom, I'm like, what is my dad doing pulling up on the oval? And he comes running up to my classroom Aww. with this letter of acceptance from the Victorian Aww. College of the Arts. Anyway, so um, he, yeah, so I found out I got in. And then my parents let me leave home at 13 and set up wow it was really cool all of my teachers to they all came together and they had cake stalls and did all these things to raise money for me to go and do this thing um and i kind of am aware of all of that stuff more now i'm older you know i've asked the question i'm like how did you guys do that when i was so young and yeah it was with all that support isn't that cool very cool and you're at VCA, you're 13 years old. Wow, that's uh, you've got some lessons to learn at that age just in general life, let alone if you're living a pseudo-adult life away from your family and in a completely mm. different state and you're going into this realm of performance which has layers of complexity to it if we're talking from an emotional point of view, from a psychological point of view, from a physical point of view, you're also going mm. through puberty at this age. Like you had a lot of uh, a lot of hurdles <laughs> to leap there, my friend. So yeah. I would like to um, to know how you managed that, or did you just not manage that? Look, uh, I managed it. I managed all of it because. I mean, of course, there were some things that were hard, right? Um, but the initial move over, I didn't, it's, I remember there, there was a hard part and the hard part was I remember being at the airport and my mum, you know, being a kid and my mum and dad taking me to the airport and my brother and I was getting on a plane and leaving home. I remember that moment at 13 vividly. And I remember the build-up, the hour before that of this, like, realisation. And I can remember my mum having it and myself having it. I guess we were all having it. We were all, it was so vivid. Um, but my mum and I, as she, because my dad took me, my mum was pregnant. I let, uh, my mum was pregnant with my little sister, so she couldn't fly to see me off in Melbourne. So my dad did that role. And my mum had to see me off at the airport. And... 
we bowled. We just broke, burst into tears. And and then she grabbed me and she went, okay, now we've got to be strong from here. So we can wipe our tears and you are going to do this wonderful thing. And, and so you're going to be strong and go and do that thing. And I'm here whenever you need me. And I remember that moment. It was just, I'll never forget it. It's so cool, right? And my heart was broken. My mum's heart was broken. I saw it. But I got on the plane and and off I went to Melbourne. And then everything was just like a wonderland. So it was easy, essentially, for me to make that move because, one, I knew I had the support from my parents. and But, two, I was doing this thing that I loved. I was following this thing that gave me joy that I thought about all day of every day. Um, I was going to do it. Um, so it was a kind of an easy move for me. I think, I guess, I mean, maybe a, a therapist might say otherwise, <laughs> if they looked at the trajectory of the rest of my life. But, um, no, but this is all sounding just... very, very glorious to this point. I do know a few little backstories to this time period of your life where um, you weren't always following the rules per se, Mr. Woodcroft. Uh, and also, um, while I did say talking... for good and bad. <laughs> I did say for good and bad. So you're this, you're this teenager let loose inside. Mm the reality of your own dreamscape and mm. surely you must have pushed the boundaries just a little bit in that time period. Yeah, I really did. It's interesting to look back now and see what I was drawn to. Also, I also what's really interesting is how I, I look back and at how I handled myself socially yeah. Um, being, you know, represent being the only one representing myself and being, I was at a, I was at a, you know, the, the house that I lived in was a hundred year old mansion on Orong Road in Armadale, which has since been turned into this, you know, 15 bedroom Uber mansion of, you know, just magnificent. I remember seeing a whole story of it on online about them selling it. Um, but back then it was the boarding house for the school. There was a tennis court out the front. There was, you know, like I said, there was 20-something bedrooms. There was a kitchen with a chef. There was also the maids' quarters where the supervisors of the hostel, they called it a hostel, such a terrible name. It should have been called the glorious mansion of our dreams. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but it was called Red Court. Anyway, check it up if you get a second. Check out this house. It's, it'll blow your mind. Red Court on Orong Road, Armadale. Anyway. Um, that was the boarding house, and yeah, I didn't have parents. I had we had a we had a supervisor, and we had curfew at ten p.m. And so there were rules there. Did I bend them? Yeah, um, you know. I guess I was an expressive child. When I look back, they weren't terrible things that I did. I mean, I guess it was terrible going and getting drunk with the year twelve students when I was in year nine. And that's probably why I got kicked out of the hostel because they felt they, they couldn't care for me. But this wasn't a constant thing, you know. I did do this thing. There were things that I did, like I said, socially that I'm like, oh, that's so interesting that I had, that I had such bravado and confidence <clears throat> to hang out with the Year 12 students when I was in Year 9. You know, I looked like I was a little flea. And well, these, these Year 12... One could say... 
Troy, you looked like Peter Pan. Your whole life looks like Peter Pan at this stage. So I'm just going to jump to And this is where the therapist it. kicks in? Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going I'm to jump back into your real life for the moment, not just your psyche. And that was your first gig, right? Mm. Peter Pan. You actually became Peter Pan. That was my first lead. That was my first lead. Yeah. Oh, my I first stand lead My first, you know, my first show was I'd been at VCA for three years and uh, four, three years, nearly four years. And I was in ballet from 8.30 in the morning, you know, and, in, and I would do four classes a day of dance. And, uh, and so I learned that. And what I was talking about earlier that, the, the structure and the technique and the and the discipline of dance um, and you need both of those things right you need the discipline to support the creative element um, and anyway so that's where I learned all of that and I really uh, initially I kind of I was terrible initially but at some point something clicked and I realized that I had to really work at this thing and I enjoyed working at it because I enjoyed how the teachers responded to me and other students as well as they saw my improvement. So in kind of, I really focused on that and I really improved out of sight in this short amount of time. And I think one of my, I still to this day don't know who planted this seed and who played this part. But one of the, I want to, I think it's one of my teachers. I want to say his name was Tim Story um, who did it, but I'm unsure. It was one of a couple of teachers that could have done this, but they, Baz Luhrmann um, was doing, he'd didn't done the movie Strictly Ballroom and he was doing his first big opera with the Australian opera. He did a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Anyway, um, he had put, reached out interest to both VCA and the Australian Ballet to get some kids in the ensemble. And I was the only one that got to audition from VCA. Somebody had suggested me. And, uh, and I went over to the Australian Ballet and, and my first ever audition was for Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> That's a name drop. That's a good name, yeah, right? I love the That's name drop because he features later in your life quite a few times. But anyway, we'll get to that. So this is great. Baz Luhrmann, first audition. Do go on. Yeah, so I got it anyway. I did, went and did a Midsummer Night's Dream and then all my shows kind of just unfurled from there. I... I also, mind you, I'm still at school. I'm still in this disciplinary practice while I was doing this opera at night. So the, that's where a little clash kind of kicked in. I think this same teacher that sent me off for this thing uh, realised he'd shot himself in the foot with me in the sense that I was getting home from these these performances around 10.30. I would sleep in the next morning and I would miss the first because I was tired, right? I'd miss the first class of ballet the next day. And this became a thing towards the end of my last year there. <clears throat> and so they had to call me in for the hard, the hard chat of we need to ask you to leave this school because these positions are so valuable. And if you are not present for them, we need to have somebody that is in that place. It wasn't said in the nice way that I said it. It was like, get out. Um, no, no, it was nice. But um, amongst these uh, classes that I was missing, I may or may not have snuck off to an audition for a musical. 
um, and started auditioning, just going by myself to auditions. Um, I think I wrote on my form for the first show, I got into 16 and three quarters. Um, anyway, I got into Cats and I found out that I had also gotten into that show the same day I got kicked out of BCA. I'm not saying that, that I'm proud of that moment, but I'm glad that there was some kind of angel again in one of these magical moments of somebody, something happening to set my path on a trajectory, on a fortunate one, because otherwise I would have gone home to Darwin, right? I think somewhere um, deep and- in your soul you can be just a little bit proud of that because the timing is also like a movie. You know, I'm seeing the uh, the overlord um, <laughs> teachers at BCA coming down on you and then all of a sudden you get this extraordinary gig and you can, you know, have a little chat yeah, with your little you know finger. But I'm sure you didn't. I'm sure you didn't. Do you know how divine the timing was, Cherie? It's out of this world. I was literally, I had turned up late to class and my teacher at class said, sorry, you have to go up to the principal's office. Uh, the principal wants to see you. I was walking on my way to the principal's office and the receptionist, Emma, I remember her name, came running across the school um, um um, what's it called? Uh, anyway, the school. She came running across the school to me, and said, "Troy, you have to call these people before." She knew what was happening, right? She knew my demise was about to unfold, but she also had received a phone call from the producers of Cats because I gave them my school number, right? I didn't have an agent, so I just gave them the front office's phone number for the producers to call if I'd gotten this part. And they called Emma, and she had found out that I had been offered a pardon, so I came running to me. So on my way to the principal's office to be kicked out, I found out I got and got a, a, a rolling cat. So going back to going back to my my ballet teacher who was crying with joy in knowing that that's how that he thought I was coming back to him to tell him I had been expelled. Um, but I had not. Okay. So I have two questions at this point. When did Peter Pan come into things? And also, what was that audition like? Well, Peter Pan came in. I had just, I got my taste of, taste it playing a lead, doing um, understudying Mark in Rent, um, which was a dream role. Um, Stop me if I've told you this before, but... Um, and it was a dream role uh, in to play Mark in Rent. I initially didn't get that. Then um, I did end up getting called in to do to play a part and study that role in Rent. Mark, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm dying over here. Um, and uh, and I wanted to sink my teeth into stuff that was like, oh, character acting or. Uh, talking, you know, previously dance and singing and everything. I mean, it's all based in acting, right? <clears throat> but, um, and then I remember there had been a production of Pan, um, um, Peter Pan done a year or two before on a smaller scale, but I'd kind of caught wind that this one was happening and it was going to be a big, big, massive budget. So, um, into, um, you know, um, into what? Well, international investors, German money, fancy sets. And then I got caught wind that it was Jim Henson's Creature Workshop. I was like, oh, my God, 
the Muppets and I'm, I'm basically a Muppet reincarnate. So I <laughs> figured, is that how you say that? Reincarnate? Reincarnate? If Something you like that. <laughs> manam, manam. <laughs> and, um, and so I went in, I got seen for it um, and then went through, you know, a series of auditions and, um, and, so what are those auditions like? Like what what did they ask mm. you to do in the first audition? What did you have to do? Was it cattle call? And then... first audition, do you know what's funny? I was so detached from it initially. I was like, oh, I think I was just in my sassy stage of life of, you know, when you're in your twenties, tw- early twenties, and you're invincible, and you're like, I guess I'll sure I'll give you some of my time to audition for it. Principal role. <laughs> oh, if only we knew, huh? Finally, uh, if only. And uh, and yeah, so I was just a bit de- quite detached. And I remember learning the dialogue in my friend's living room, my friend Anne's apartment. And I was like, "Can you help me with these lines?" And I was learning them. I was climbing all over her couches and things, just kind of feeling at the embodiment of who this guy was and then I was like why actually this is perfect like it's all the things for me it's um the acrobatics the um you know uh, and the and the responsibility of a lead role so anyway the audition process was I can't even you know I don't even remember the I do remember the first audition and uh, it was pretty standard, you know, you go in, there's a panel. I think there was the director and maybe another person in the first round and they kind of suss out whether, you know, they're going to get you back in. And anyway, and then there were a few rounds after that. It would have been maybe three rounds and then they auditioned you with Rayleigh Hill, who was playing Wendy, who they'd already cast to see if so we were So you've got to feel at this point that, okay, I'm in with mm. a good chance did you get that feeling when you were auditioning or you didn't really tap into stuff like that it's just like I'll give it my best if I get it I do if I don't case are up I think the latter yeah it's it's just you know that detachment again that beautiful like oh you know you're not desperate for it because you're 20 and and anything could happen or is going to happen and you know so um it's nice to feel like that, isn't it? God, I wish I still felt like that more often. <clears throat> Ambrosia. Wasted on the youth, huh? Wasted on the youth. <laughs> um, can you imagine what we'd do? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, yeah, and so my final, final audition, then it was a series. They, it was, I spent some, I did a couple of rounds with Rayleigh and then it was just me by myself and the director, the producers, a panel of people, um, and a casting director. Um, and getting back to your question, did I kind of know? I remember that final audition and I remember giving it my all, right? But kind of, I did it. It was great. I remember leaving. I was, I'd finished. Thank you so much and wonderful. And I, I left the room and I grabbed my bags and I was walking down King Street in Newtown. And I remember going, wait a minute, that didn't feel like if I, like, <clears throat> if I was going to be offered the lead role, the show's called Pan, if I was getting offered Peter Pan in Pan, I'd kind of have a vibe for it, wouldn't I, in my final audition. I 
couldn't read the room. I didn't know. And I'm walking along. And then something in me, my feet turned around. I'm sorry if this sounds obnoxious. Well, it does because it is. But <laughs> I, my feet turned my feet turned around and started walking back to the um, the theatre the, where we were auditioning in, in Newtown. And I was like, what am I doing? What's going on? I would know if I had this part. I'm going back. I didn't know what to do. What was I going to do? Go in and cartwheel through the doors and say, let, let me do it again. Uh, it may have helped. It may have helped. <laughs> I've well, seen you cartwheel. I think it did help because I did burst through the doors. And, and, um, and, and the glorious... Um, casting agent was I think everybody else was back in the room I don't know if they were auditioning someone else or probably right that's what they were there for and I burst through the doors and I mean I'm being dramatic I didn't burst through the doors I opened the door and came in and spoke to <laughs> Kirsty McGregor who um, is now like one of the biggest casting agents in Hollywood um, and um, and I just said hi I just I'm Troy and she's like I know and I was like I just auditioned for you in, and she's like, I know. And I said, I don't know why I'm doing this and I n- wouldn't normally ever do something like this, but I just need you to know that I think I'm the, the guy for the part. I'm him. It's probably going to work against me now hearing myself back. I said to her, I said, but just for my, I just need to say that for myself. And I left. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that's what got me the part. Right. Amazing. Because, because that's who that guy is, right? No fear. Just balls to the wall adventure. Yeah. Um, are we allowed to say that in your podcast, balls to the we wall? We can say whatever we like. Oh, God. Who knows if anyone's Fantastic. listening at this stage? Who knows? <laughs> who knows? I'm pretty sure they might be with your following. <laughs> Not with mine. Um, but I love the fact that you had actually already become Peter Pan in that moment. Mm, That's just yeah. so adorable because clearly physically you look like Peter Pan. You've got this impish aspect to your nature anyway. You're very um, funny. You can say it. And, you can say it, and, part elf. And you are part elf. Thank you. Thank you. I was feeling slightly uncomfortable about that. But um, <laughs> If only but Lord yes. of the Rings was around back then. I know. You would have been amazing in that. Okay, so then you did get that gig and you became Peter Pan and that just is amazing. But I, I do want to touch on audition stories because I think there's something really wild about the psychology of someone who is prepared to put themselves out there and be that vulnerable on high rotation, if you think about what the audition process is, right? You go in there, you're all open heart because you're a creative soul, but you're standing in front of these people who who are not always, but at least have one foot in the world of hard and fast business because they are producing something that needs to be viable in order to make it happen and for everybody to get paid and and for it to be a success. But I'm just interested in what your headspace was when you go in. And I know youth was on your side, but surely there were other aspects to your psyche that you took in with you. And whether you were aware of 
any defence mechanisms that you had in place so that you wouldn't get hurt if you had to deal with rejection or whether that just didn't even come into your thinking? It's a really interesting question because I, I think about this now I'm older, right, and wiser. <laughs> um, and I think, look, my very first experience of an audition was was one you would make up for a story of a movie, right? It was um, I'd skipped school, um, and again, stop me if I if I've already if I'm repeating myself, but um, I skipped a day of school. I'd already I was working doing a show for Baz, my first gig, which was a Midsummer Night's Dream, the, the, the Aussie Opera, Australian Opera, and I always knew from from early childhood as weird as it was because it was also the first show i ever saw cats right that weird sci-fi cat musical with weird people singing cat songs in opera and unitards but it was all i ever wanted to be and do and um from very very early on so anyway i heard that they were auditioning i was like i gotta i gotta go to this audition i did i skipped school um and and went and it was my first real experience of an audition like you see on you know a chorus line right that movie a chorus line and and on broadway and they're all you know there's lines down the street there wasn't the lines down the street but there was you know at least 250 people in to this cattle call because i didn't have an agent or representation there and so um so you know at least 250 people coming into audition and all walks of life you know from the weirdest type of people like people actually dressing up as cats to come in to audition for cats. <laughs> I mean, that's an, that's a, that is literally a documentary within itself. Sure. That whole world. But anyway, um, that's for another podcast. Um, and so I went into this audition. I'd never done one before. I kind of had an idea of what it was, but I think there was, uh, everything was so heightened, adrenaline, not just because I was auditioning for something, something, but it was because I was in an audition period. Like I was in an audition, like it was electric. So I think that energy set me aside from everyone else. You know, I didn't have an expectation. I honestly didn't, which is rare. You know, it, what a beautiful innocence to have because that changes. You, you know what I'm talking about. That changes, right? And you're constantly figuring out how do I recreate a, the right headspace for an audition setting? Um, but this was the right one. And I was just at my peak. I, I was in, you know, I was in ballet school. So I was every morning at 8.30 at the ballet bar. My technique was on point. I was also a self-trained taught acrobatic, which I used to do as well, like backflips, you know, just whenever for breakfast. Um, and and this for cats it's perfect right so anyway i i was young they needed a new mungo jerry which was the role if i was to have handpicked a role it was that one wow. that i was going to do um and and yeah joanne robinson i did the first routine joanne robinson is the woman she's there's jillian jillian oh god oh my god i'm going to get tasered in the face jillian lynn um, who is, you know, it was on the West End and then Broadway or Broadway in the West End, I can't remember, I think. Anyway, and um, this is going back into the early 80s, so I was a baby. 
But um, but then there was the Australian production after that, um, Joanne Robinson, right? So she was part of the the original British version and then brought that to Australia. So she is the god of all things cats. And this woman, I did my first <laughs> um, routine, my first um, go at the, at the combination, and then she just singled me at you. And I was in... I was in tracksuit pants, a sloppy T-shirt. I had jazz shoes, but she just went, you, what are you wearing? <laughs> and I, I looked around to see if she was talking to me. She was talking to me and she singled me out and she was like, does that, does that, what are you wearing? Do you have anything else to wear? And I was like, no, 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 this is, this is all I got. She was like, does anybody have any, anything that this young man can wear for this audition? You're dressed so inappropriately. And, uh, you didn't and bring course, your cat costume. I didn't bring the cat, but of course, this lovely, um, let's say, expressive person put their hand up and said and held up a pair of hot pants. Well, she's like, put them on. So I did. I put on the hot pants, and uh, she's like, I need to see you dance. So she did. The, she had me do the combination again in front of everyone, and then. She said, what else? Can you do acrobatics? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. What can you do? Anything. I said, um, you know, tumbling passes, front salts, back salts, side salts. I've never done a side salt in my life. She said, <laughs> do a side salt. And I did. I just, in my head, went, what is a side salt? I did my preparation round off. And then instead of tucking backwards, I switched to the side. I did a side salt. Well, she shot up from the chair and screamed, where have you been all my life? And came running across the room and literally jumped on me, like bear hugged me in front of everyone in the audition. You know, so not you kind of got a feeling that you got that well, one? Well, I'd never been in an audition before. so I'd, <laughs> You thought they were to all going to be like this. <laughs> <laughs> so my long answer is I thought they were all going to be like that. I love auditions. So nice. <laughs> so I think that helped me, you know, for future auditioning because I had this audacity and rebellion and, or just like, you know what? I wasn't always, there were a couple of times I was really attached to the outcome. Rent was one of them. And, and I pushed that away. I still ended up getting it, but I really went through what it is to not to lose something and push it away. Um, and because uh, you want it so much, you know, and it's all you think about the obsession, um, which is awful. What an awful place to be in. It was so much better when, uh, when I had that innocence about me. So, yeah, I think that helped me for many years that those experiences. Speaking of uh, audacity, as we were, um, I would like a, a rendition of a story that I have heard as rumour only, and I'd like it verified, please, with as much detail as possible. And that is that, um, <laughs> namely, there was one certain audition that you turned up to, and it is stock standard that when you're auditioning, you arrive with a headshot, which is a professionally taken photograph of yourself that usually your agent, you know, has... Eight by ten, um, yeah. Decided. But you forgot it this one day. Mm. So how did you get around that fact that you couldn't offer your headshot when you were asked for it in this audition? 
I don't think we should tell anyone this story. Come we? on, this is brilliant. This is, this is comfort. This is incompetence of your husband and myself when he. <laughs> I was auditioning for. Oh my god! I'm saying this is not. This is a bad story. But anyway, I'll tell it. Um, I was auditioning for. <laughs> for the Wizard of Oz. Um, no wonder they hated me. Well, you Sorry, also took your own guitarist in, which is not I really did. standard procedure. <laughs> I did, and I did, and I sung "Swing on a Star" with a guitar, with a rock guitarist, your husband, and uh, and uh, yeah, but I, I got in there and realised that I had left my headshot and resume at home, and I drew a picture. I drew a picture of my face. And stapled it to the, I did have one I did have a spare resume in my in my music book and I stapled a self-drawn illustrated let's say it was self-illustrated that sounds less the, uh, obnoxious it was the it? animated version of the you. animated version oh. yeah, what the was gift. their response by the way the were gift. they just looking at you going uh-huh or were they going that's well I did let's just say I didn't get the job right not cute not cute I love <laughs> that cute. story it's absolutely hysterical. Okay, so let's jump ahead because uh, I want to know what it was like for you to book your very first gig in the US where you lived mm. for many years and you performed Broadway, et cetera. But what was it like to book that first gig? Look, it was amazing. It's funny because I'm screening myself because I'm like, do I give you the be the, the beautiful hollywood everything's amazing version or do i give you the real version i want the real version you the know real that. version well let's say it's both of those things right um but in truth i mean i've told you about how i won't say easily things came for me in australia but how much easier things came for me in australia i was the only one in my lane as a young little brat being that because there were things that were right for me when I was young, I wasn't a kid. I wasn't a 12 year old or 10 year old. I was 16. I looked closer to 10, let's say that, but, um, but I was, you know, 16. And then from 16 to 20, there were these roles that were, well, the first one was what a gopi, a pink person in a midsummer night's dream for Baz. They were all kind of ethereal characters and they all fell into the realm of elf. So, I was really fortunate that I fit into that, right? They didn't want some 29-year-old or 40-year-old person in these parts. They wanted some elf and lad type. fortunate that I there was a space for me, right, initially. Um, um, and so that was, sorry, can we, can you, what was I saying? <laughs> Damon, you're going to have to edit this part out. What was your first... <laughs> What was it like to book your first gig in the US? Oh, that's right. Look, tr look, triggered and trauma. Look, tr traumaed and triggered. Um, no, look, my to book. You can start it from here, Damien. Booking my first gig in America was lots of lots of, and it was a mixed bag of emotions because I had been fortunate in Australia as a young person to be in my own lane for booking roles. Um, and there was no one else in my lane. 
that it also, because of that, had booked up, you know, several shows. So I was kind of in, I was kind of crushing it in that, in that department then living in America where there was, you know, 150,000 more, you know, better versions of me. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was a journey. It took blood, sweat and tears to, to get a look in, let alone an audition, let alone book the job. So it was tough. It was really tough. So booking my first thing was like, they were, they felt like massive accomplishments. Um, but you know, you always compare, right? I always compared it to Australia and as amazing as they were, well, look, the first the first show, gig, you know, performing gig that I was doing in the US, I worked at Disneyland because I lived in LA before, you know, theatre's my world. I worked in, I lived in LA before I lived in, the, in New York. And so, you know, LA is where film and TV happens, not theatre. So there wasn't a ton of stuff for me to audition for as far as theatre goes. <clears throat> but interestingly so, the contacts that I ended up, the people that I ended up working for in New York on Broadway were the contacts that I made in LA and set up in LA. Being in a slightly different pool of people, I think that helped. Um, but yeah, there was moments of, I don't, you know, look, I don't want to sound ungrateful in saying this, or let's just say the gratitude lays in coming from Australia in this answer. I was so grateful to work with the best in Australia, I was in the it gang um, in Australia. You know, my you know, I was in Hugh Jackman's first show. It was his first musical and my third. Actually, funnily enough, found a photo today of the two of us backstage, and I thought, gosh, that's cool. That was before he was, you know, Wolverine, and I mean, you know, he's the top, right? It's as famous as you get in that world. Uh, but anyway, look, so yeah, so in Australia, achieving things were definitely, um, I don't know, maybe they were better. Uh, I worked on Broadway in New York. It was amazing. What Hugh was Jackman that? Wasn't, what was Hugh Jackman that wasn't like? in the cast. <laughs> <laughs> or, or was he? <laughs> or was he? Oh, I don't know. I didn't notice at that stage. Um, I would like... A little more name dropping, actually. Uh, I'm I'm thinking about uh, another rumor that I heard that you can verify or not, um, and that is uh, so you've been in the US, you've lived um, and worked in in uh, LA and and then in New York for many many years, but then you're back in Australia, and uh, I did here that um and i would imagine this is one of the standout memories did you hear because um, i was at your house <laughs> no <laughs> i heard that i don't even know what the question's gonna be <laughs> you're concerned now i heard that you met elvis across a dishwasher wow at Wait. a party yeah, I love the across the dishwasher element. You said to me that you were packing the dishwasher at the party. I was actually. Well, I don't know if it was while I was meeting said uh, said Elvis slash Austin Butler, who played Elvis. But it's a cool story, actually. So it I'll tell cool it to story. you. Um, um, 
I'd also, do you know what? It's funny how things are connected. Do you ever think uh, about the, what is it, the divine synchronicity of things and how it's all kind of connected? I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is. I think it is. Um, but I was watching a show when I was actually out here doing Strictly Ballroom for Baz Luhrmann. I was, I had to learn that project. I got thrown into that show. I was out here on a holiday from New York and got, you know, picked up and thrown into, well, I had to audition my pants off for it. Um, but ended up doing Strictly Ballroom out here. And I had to learn that show so super fast that I could never get the songs out of my head. So I used to go home and watch trashy TV. This is going somewhere, I promise you. Um, and You were I watching watched, The Vampire Diaries, weren't you? I was watching, you remember, I was watching The Vampire Diaries 1 and then it got even worse. I started watching anything that had the word diaries in it. And then I started watching The Carrie Diaries, which is like the prequel, the... It's prequel kids version of to Sex in the City, right? It's like where was Carrie um, before? You know when she was a teenager. Well, she was on a show called The Carrie Diaries, and the love interest was Austin Butler. And I remember wow. just thinking that I just was like, this guy is stunning. Like he's the Prince of Hollywood. He's the new Prince of Hollywood. You know, he's he's like six foot ten and and olive skin and you know and you know and but he's also just a, a dude and he's not trying he just has the thing right anyway so that was my first kind of vibe of him and then and then I remember passing him one day in New York on the street you know that really does happen in the US you really do walk past celebrities on the, on the street and it was Austin Butler this day and I remember being like oh my god I was kind of a little starstruck cut to me moving back to Australia, co uh, intending to live in Sydney, COVID happens and I'm living on the Gold Coast and my friend is the second, Baz's second assistant director on Elvis and she's like, do you, well, actually, before I knew that I was going to go and work on the movie, this is crazy, before I knew that I was going to go and work on the movie, because of all my connections through Strictly Ballroom, and the and the Baz Hub, right? I was at a at a I guess we'll call it a COVID party at my friend Ash Ash B and Jamison's um, house up in the mountains of Mount Tambourine. Now, like, come on over. We're having friends over for drinks, barbecue, afternoon. Like, you know, we're not locked down. Let's live it up. So we all met at Ash's house, and 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 uh, and yes, they didn't tell me who was going to be there. And that Elvis himself was going to be there, <laughs> and that yeah, that I'd be stacking a dishwasher, and and, and Austin, and then you know, cut to me and Austin hanging out talking for the rest of the evening. He's the coolest guy. He's the the loveliest, most amazing man. And you know what? That COVID thing did wonders for that performance because not that he wasn't good initially, but <clears throat> he just did so much work on that character in that time that he was gifted. He's like, I'm going to stay. He could have gone back to the US, but he decided to stay here through through the, the lockdowns part of me. And, and, uh, and you know, you saw the, did you see the shot? Did you see that yeah. movie? Yeah. It's I mean, no, everybody has been a caricature of that, of that, of Elvis Presley, right? Until Austin. 
He was pretty amazing. I love that story, though, just the way you told me. Yeah, I met Elvis across the dishwasher. It's a a weird (laughs) romantic aspect to that. Yeah, that is odd. I think that just back to Strictly Ballroom, because I remember that and coming to see you do that in Melbourne and you were extraordinary and and then coming and seeing you do it in Brisbane as well. And you were also extraordinary there. But there were even skinnier in Brisbane. (laughs) Yeah, you were the incredible (laughs) shrinking version of yourself. And and I guess that's um my next question is um like what aspects of performing do you think are most often underestimated like whether that's physical or it's psychological or it's from an emotional point of view one word theater is the most underestimated well to be a a theater performer you know it's one thing you can go to a film and you get you know a period of time and a personal trainer to make you look a certain way and you know and and the pressure is on on the day of shooting when you're filming that scene, yes, the pressure is on. But um, <clears throat> but outside of that, you know, in or you know, in comparison, theatre, you're most people don't know that you're that those. You go and see a show and you see it that one night, and it's amazing, and you see all its glory. Or even if it's a play, right? And you and you see these intense scenes and this emotional roller coaster. It's live, and it's eight shows a week. So you're, it's, it's, I always say it's comparable to being an athlete and not just an, an athlete, but somebody that's training for the Olympics or that is in the Olympics because eight shows a week, you have to, you know, that's why these jobs are so scarce too. You're, you, the people that are getting them are these veterans of what that is. You know, it's really interesting. Um, Hamilton and this whole new breed of types of, performers have come into the mix because of the way theater has changed being that it's more commercialized now right so you know if you are right for a part and you're a rapper but you may not have any theater experience whatsoever then you're what they want Mm. Um, however they're quick to find out that these kids struggle pulling out eight shows a week um, so this is my this is my point. No shade on those kids, those kids at all. Like how incredible and what a great place to learn that. You know, I had to learn that in my first shows. I think I told you earlier. You know, the the director Joanne Robinson's coming to me and saying, "This is your job now. You need to give this one hundred and fifty percent, eight shows a week, and nothing short of that." So really learning that and understanding that in itself is an amazing thing to learn and hard, uh, a hard lesson to learn, but also a wonderful one. Like, my God, if, you know, that's something to set you up for the rest of your life then, you know, a lesson in, in you know, working your butt off. It's it's in, it's going to go and be in a show. So, yeah, theatre, I think theatre is, I don't think, you know, people, they, you get paid in Hollywood. You don't get paid in theatre. But you should. It should be the other way around. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting take on things because it is so profoundly difficult to bring mm. all of those skills at their mm. peak to this vector point in mm. a situation call, where you are. Should we live. call Meryl Streep and ask her if she can do eight shows a week? <laughs> 
You know, it's it's funny, isn't it, when you see that people come from film and then they want to do theatre and I'd imagine that that's a, a really confronting thing. when It is. Because I've live performance, shows. it mm. throws up so many different things for you and you have to almost find a way from a psychological point of view, from a physical point of view, from an emotional point of view to just shut out the the white noise and absolutely commit yourself. It's like a meditation. Nothing else can get in. You have to just have this single focus. And I suppose when I'm lucky enough to be sitting in the audience, I always consider that whether it's ballet, whether it's opera, whatever it is, if it's live, I'm always considering what unique aspects of that show did I just bear witness to that would have been different last night because no two shows are the same. But on that, Mm. I really want to ask you, like how did you handle things when something went wrong in the moment and you're in front of an entire audience because you've done a lot of dance, you've done a lot of um, performing that is, it's so pivotal that you get things right and not just for you, but if you're performing with other people, which I've seen you do many times and often you're throwing a girl around in the air, you, how do you make sure that if something goes wrong, you have the headspace to be able to just... <laughs> overused word after COVID, but pivot, literally. Mm, mm. Look, I think there's, I mean, you know, the preparation, it's all you, all the work that you do leading up to a live performance, you prepare for that stuff too, don't you? And you iron out any of those potential risk factors as much as possible so that you eliminate as much of that risk element as possible so that, you know, that you are just sitting in that zone of, of that sweet place of that performance. But, but yes, occasionally things do happen. I mean, you know, I've been in shows when they, when they, when things do, and you just get on with it. I think, I think as an audience, look, if something's even, if something's really obviously falling apart, audiences are generally more supportive of that. They love it because they know that they're seeing this one time that, you know, that the cart fell apart on stage and you know oh is it part of it oh no that's not meant to be doing that because that's hanging on by a you know i don't know look it's there's always a million things that could go wrong do you know what's funny actually though that's it is an interesting question because it's one of the things that i have used to wig myself out before or 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 try and wig myself out right when you talk you know it's like with yourself as the third person and you're on stage so you're yourself but you're playing a character and then you're looking at yourself from the outside of those two worlds. Um, and and I'm often in those moments where you've got to, you know, you're on stage, but you're not doing anything. So you're, you're in a paused state. I've thought really crazy things like I could totally F this whole scenario up right now, either uh, like intentionally like and and play my play out in my mind what that would look like and how far you could go with that and what re- and then what the reactions would be like and I don't know that's a place of insanity if you ask me um, but it's uh, 
eight shows but a week. You've got to build yeah, the time. It's definitely, it's definitely a place that my head's gone to before of like, oh, how? And also in the the power that lay in that. You would never do it, obviously. You would never do it because you'd just spend the rest of your life feeling terrible. But <clears throat> but you could. That's it's what kind of that, like, it's that live element. It's like vertigo, isn't it? You just go up it's to like the edge vertigo. and you go, I really, really could jump right now. I could really yeah. just jump. It's like life itself. You know, you could just really effort all if you really try like, or maybe not even really try, like it's there's things that you can do to really F something up that are at your disposal, but you don't do them, right? Because then that is actual insanity. But it's kind but of a cool life. Teetering on the line is kind of fun. Yeah, that, that tightrope that mm. performers, I think, walk that so often that they're so well practiced. And, you know, mm. so many of my friends like you, they are performers. And you either go one way or the other, right? You become a complete paranoid mess because you're constantly focusing on just how fine a line you're walking in life or you have this resilience that builds up and you just keep coming back to the centre of this is what I love, this is what I'm good at and shutting out that, like I said, that, mm. that kind of white noise. Yeah, it's really interesting. Hey, what um, what moment were you most proud of? in your career? I'm sure there's many, but what springs to mind? I mean, I used to have a moment of gratitude, of, of uh, conscious gratitude when I was, um, and I'd usually try and do this in all, you know, in all wonderful things that happen in my life, right? Um, practice gratitude and like, you know, realisation that, you know, how privileged we already are just to wake up with our limbs and, you know, and our sanity and, and food in the fridge. Uh, but then from there, you know, um, pr 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 uh, you know, I always had different ones and it's funny how you can kind of make them theatrical in the world of theater because, you know, when I, for example, when I was playing pan, I used to do this before my opening entrance, which was, um, you know, the overture would play and then this there was this scream across the front of the stage uh, with Pan written on it and then and then my they recorded this version of, of a laugh of mine that they they had the, all these little tiny speakers all through the auditorium of the theatre so they could throw sound around with being my voice. So it sounded like I flew around, you know, flew past somebody's head. So it was almost like 3D... 4D sound, is that what you'd call it? Yeah. You should ask Damien, he'll know the answer to that. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, anyway, and so it would start with that laughter that flung around the auditorium and then they would fly me across the front of the stage, but it was only a, a you would only see my shadow, right, Peter Pan, um, genius. Um, but when I was wenched, you know, 40 feet up in the air before my first flight across the stage, I had that. I just had a moment of reflection every night, and I was there, and I could look across. The coolest thing was is that I could look directly across to the other side of the the Capitol Theatre, and in Sydney, and see and see my shadow, and it was me suspended in the air or flying, if you will, as Peter Pan. So I could just kind of, I mean, you know, 
my lower back like my lower back pain will tell you different i was wenched in the air by you know a leather harness and uh, gosh that sounds kinky doesn't it <clears throat> maybe it was um anyway and i could see my reflection across on the on the wall and i used to just have a, grat- a moment of gratitude going i'm flying that's a very cool thing i mean yeah, yeah. what an extraordinary life what about surprise like when were you most surprised well the first thing that came to mind i don't know if this is mind i don't know if this is the answer that you're looking wanted or hoping for but um it was look it ends well but i was I was in between <laughs> jobs in New- I was in between jobs in New York and I'd been hustling and I'd done a couple of tours and um but I hadn't cracked Broadway. Um uh, God knows I'd auditioned. And uh, um but I had been when you go out um in the US when you go out on a tour, you know, in Australia, if you're an understudy or a swing, they're called the, the track is called a swing. And a swing is somebody that understudies seven parts right it's a it's probably the hardest job in out of all of the people on stage i mean yes the leading the leading characters are really difficult because they have to be perfection eight shows a week and they're in that high pressure role but all of the roles are like that if you've got three lines you got to get them right each night if you you know it's all hard all different versions of the same thing right but a swing is a type of understudy that that covers like let's um use cats for example i know i keep talking about that stupid show but it's it's one that i did both in australia and the us and in the us i was the swing and i understudied i think it was five five principal parts they're wow. all leads and they all had solo singing dancing held you know for chunks of the show held the stage you know with all the other weird people dressed in lycra and mohair wigs um but um they're really hard parts but in australia the point that i'm taking a long time to get to is that that, you know it's cool to be a swing but it's almost seen as the lesser part whereas in the u.s when you're earning your stripes if you get a position of a swing it is like gold because they're the first role they're the first positions they take to broadway anyway my surprise element was um i was unemployed i was working as a waiter um in a place right near um right near central park and i remember i just started there i'd only been there a couple weeks i'd finally gone okay gotta get a job let's go be a waiter did it got into this place and i was i remember it, it was valentine's day no i started on valentine's day it was let's say a week, well, it was exactly a week before because I was waitering and then the next day I got a call from um, the casting director that cast me in Mamma Mia on the tour in the US, in the US, and said, hey, we have a position on Broadway. We need it filled tomorrow. Um, can you can you do it? I was like, uh, let me check my diary. <laughs> But that surprise element was amazing because, and I'll tell you why, because I got to start on, you know, uh, you know, you never know what's going to happen in life. And it is one of those stories where, uh, you know, 
that you know that you hear about where you know i was waitering and then i got that call and look that never happens but in this circumstance it did and i did get that call and i had worked for these people for two years previously on a tour throughout you know nearly all 50 states of the u.s so i don't miss stripes if you will but but to get but it was a magical way of you know just getting asked to fill a position and it was because i'd been a swing also on that project that i was asked to other than somebody else that just knew that role they knew if they called me and got me in for this one role that i also knew others and i was a benefit for the company so you know um so the surprise element answering your question was when you when you're out the back you know new york um restaurants right imagine you know the busiest restaurant you can imagine in sydney and on times 10 right and so when you're also so there's so many people working as a waiter in in per per restaurant and when you're out back i was about to say backstage when you're out back back of house um you know and you turn a corner you'll usually yell out corner as you're going around because you've got trays of drinks or whatever and food and all that well whatever whatever you got and you'll yell out corner anyway I literally um, was called into Broadway. I had an afternoon of rehearsing the show and learning my track. And I was like, I know this track. It's this one and this one combined that I did on tour and because it's, you know, slightly different on Broadway. But I knew it. I learned it. I was on that the following, um, that weekend I was on, that Saturday. Wow. Um, and I remember being backstage and running around for one of my cues. And I kid you not, as I went around one of the corners, I said corner, <laughs> like I was still in the restaurant at. Uh, and did everyone in, know exactly what you were talking about? Because no they one knew because, waiters. <laughs> no one knew because no one was near me, and I would have died if they would have heard me, or if anyone else had asked question why I said corner as I walked around that corner in a wetsuit <laughs> in Mamma Mia. But it is because I my head had been so in that place, and the surprise on it was that I wasn't anymore. Yeah. Wow. Mm. <laughs> yes, those uh, sliding doors, huh? Um, yeah. What's your what's your favourite film? Look, that's who can ever answer that question? All right. What's um, your favourite song? These are going harder. Who can ever <laughs> ask? But hang on, but let me elaborate on that answer for you. I mean... It changes, right? And, you know, uh, I'm a lover of good music and amazing. I'm a a lover of amazing music, good music, not specific, not a specific type, right? Um, So, so many genres. It's, it just, is it good? It does it make me feel, does it blow my, blow my hair back? So I have so many favorite songs. Look, there's one, if I had to have a go-to right now, there's one that I use as my alarm clock because it's just the most, it's just a mind-blowing piece of music. I, w- I won't go as far as to say it's my favourite song of all time, but it's definitely in the soundtrack to my life, right? Now, if you uh, put all your favourite songs together, they'd be the soundtrack to your life. This is one of them. And it is called The Waking by Kurt Elling. And it is, he's a jazz singer and he is is, yeah and it and he wrote this song it's actually a poem and then he turned this poem into a duet with an upright bass um and just 
do it. Just listen to this track. In the middle of this song, he does this three octave riff that goes, um, that spans between three octaves. Um, and he does it in one friggin' breath. Uh, is it impossible? Yes. Is he a freak? Yes. Um, do I love the song because of it? Yes. The Waking. <laughs> uh, favorite film? I don't know. I just saw, oh God, there's so many, right? Gosh. I don't know. I, I know. think um, with stuff like your favorites, you're right. It shifts because it depends where you're at and the time that you discover something. But uh, some of my best musical recommendations have come from you, so I'm always interested to know oh, what you're listening to. Oh, that's lovely to hear. What are you, what are you listening to right now? Um, you know what? I've just been revisiting so many cool mm. things. I had uh, Tony Bennett playing oh, with yes. Katie Lang. Um, and I just haven't listened to Tony Bennett forever. And then <gasps> I remember. Did I tell you about meeting Katie Lang? Go on, give us a name. Oh drop. my God, Cherie. So when I was uh, when I was living in New York and part of that Broadway community, when you're in that little hub, when shows are opening or they're in previews and they want to put a supportive audience in, they will get the Broadway community in, right? So we all get free tickets and we all go and see these shows. Oh, God, I'm going to forget the name of the show now. Mid, mid, uh, after Midnight, I want to say it was called. It was a it was a true, uh, what would you call, even call it, a variety show? I don't know. It was a a collection of of soul music. Let's say that the whole clip piece was a for for a terrible use of words, a African American tribute to to the fifties, sixties, let's say fifties soul, you know, R and B world. Um, and Katie Lang was the siren, the one white woman in this show. Oh my God! Jerry. What a voice! Uh, this is how I described it. Yes, but then live and in this in this world that we were taken to, she's Judy Garland in a man's body. <laughs> that's how I describe really? it, and I'm so. If that sounds, I don't know. In the, like. She was, oh, my God, I'll never forget it. Her vocals were the sweetest, like the contrast of how she looks because she was a man, she wore a suit and she had a quiff and, you know, and they they were in a suit and but this voice was not with the body. Oh, my Amazing. God. Anyway, sorry. And you I, met her. I, yeah, well, I went up to her. I freaked her out and ran up to her and I was like, "You're because you know we we met all the cast afterwards in the Broadway Hub world on this special performance day, and uh, everyone knew everyone. I didn't know anyone, but I just walked straight up to KD and I was like, "You are transcend transcending." I said to her, oh, "Sounded like I was going to say something else then, didn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you say. <laughs> how do you handle that like when you meet somebody super famous oh, do you just yourself, let right? all of the um do I embarrass myself yes yeah do you <laughs> yes of course Good. 
That's a good Aussie that. thing to I do. think I'd do that. I think I'd do that anyway, right, with anyone. But, yeah, um, uh, depends. Some people, I don't know. I've been in this, I don't know. Sometimes I'm re- then I can be really confident and uh, that's the Gemini or whatever or in me or two-sided versions of myself. I'm really confident and can go up and say hello to somebody and, and it's usually in their praise, right? I mean, Katie, it wasn't about me needing her. I had to tell her, I had to thank her and tell her how incredible she, I thought she was. Um, but then I've been in incidents, you know, in circumstances before, actually with Damien, he'll remember. And I won't mention who, but we were out together and I'd worked with this famous person before and this famous person was clearly saying they knew who I was to me. And this weird thing came over me and I pretended that I didn't know and and didn't do anything about it because I didn't know what to say to them. Wow. So I froze in fear. And Damien was like, dude, you're being really weird. <laughs> Damien was like, that person's looking right at you. Isn't that weird? Yeah. That's why I, that's why I asked <laughs> the question because I think that that changes like your favourite song, right? It depends mm. at what moment in time you kind of connect with somebody and what your confidence level is and what you perceive them to be and what maybe they have been in your life or what you're hoping they'll be in your life I think it's really complex and just really intriguing because the whole concept of fame to me is so interesting. We Mm. all know that it's not real, but my God, we buy into it. And there's something really magical about buying into it. Like you said, it's transcendent. You know, you can listen to somebody and because they're super famous, you are, you're, you're transported. Mm. But it's all of those layers of Mm. what you perceive them to be. Uh, and and whether you've been listening to them all I your life my, or you know the what? first just, time you heard that song or whatever it is. Just going back one quick second, though, with Katie Lang, it wasn't because she was famous. It was because I'd never seen it. She was famous because of this thing, which was the voice that came out of this physical type of mm. look, the way we perceive with our eyes, right? And then when And then our ears paint a whole other completely contrasting scenario of this person we're looking at. That's why she's Katie Lang. And you, you, I, you, I never, you'd, you'd never quite understand that until you saw it in person. And that's what it was. It was like, whoa. Anyway. Um, that live yeah, element can stuff. never be mm. underestimated. I think that there is, like you were saying before, there is something so charged about being bearing witness to somebody when they are expressing themselves in a way that just is the absolute pinnacle of their craft Mm. and you Mm. get to take it in. It's extraordinary. I love it. It's extraordinary. It's so cool. So good. (laughs) Hey, if, um, if everything cool was to happen to you in one day, what Mm. would the day look like? This doesn't have to be about career. This is beyond mm. career. Mm. 
oh, this is going to sound really cheesy, but it's kind of where my focus is right now in life. But all of that comes from within, doesn't it? Whatever that is, right? Whatever that joy is. Um, and I'm really trying to kind of bring myself back to that because it's we're at such a trying time in life where everything external is important because it's survival being affording life, right? And I mean, you know, we're still very fortunate here in Australia. Our version of that is pretty darn cute. But um, we're all being forced to, you know, um, you know, everything's just unaffordable now. And it's like, you know, it's not, not it doesn't match up, right? It doesn't make sense to me. So anyway, I'm really trying again to, so that doesn't get me down, that element of life. I don't want that to be, I don't want that to come into my psyche um, because it will, you know, then affect it, right? And and make it so. So I'm really trying to go within and and feel what that where that wealth comes from and what is what it is that makes that thing feel cool. And so, my the best I ever would start with that awareness, let's say, and that mindfulness and. And uh, and a little bit of uh, gratitude in there, and maybe some kind of like display of gratitude. Whether it's you get up in the morning and you have a little stretch, and you just really breathe in the fact that we are that you know that our bodies work, and that we are healthy, and that we are alive. Let's start with that. So that's a good starting point, and then from there, you know, let that you know, ah, uh, God. I would love to go on, oh, my God, this is going to sound really cheesy after I've just said, sounded so kind of, sounded so wholesome. I'm going to say I'd love to go and buy myself something really, really cool in this amazing best day ever. I'd love to go and buy, and and it's not excessive. I don't mean like go and buy a Porsche. I mean, no, it would have to be electric. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I don't know if I want a Tesla. I don't think that my, the car that I want is out there yet. Maybe it is. Um, so, but it's not that big, right? It's simple. Best it's a pony. Simple. What you're looking for it's is a pony. pony. An, electric, an electric pony. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're going to buy yourself something. A pony, an electric pony. Uh, I'm going to, I am then going to, Meet you and or meet you for for brunch, maybe somewhere in our like. Can these unit can it be a sliding doors thing? Can and can it anything be anything is possible, right? Yes. So I'm going to meet you. I don't know if it's somewhere in Sydney. Do you want it to be Sydney? Where do we meet sure. for brunch, you and I? Yeah. All right. So, um, and maybe we go together to buy a couple of things. Maybe there's lots of shopping through the day. Um, so we go for brunch. We go for shopping because we're going out to we're going we've got a really busy weekend i'm saying weekend because a day is not enough um because on the first day on the first day we're going to the premiere of a film really that yeah or actually we're going to the launch the 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 launch of this podcast okay so, right. well that's just us now so that's cool it's just us yeah. And then that's later that night. But then the following day we are going to, we're getting on a jet and getting flown to New York to go and see, I don't even know what's on in New York right now in theatre. 
Is there something we'll we want to go see? Figure it out when we get there. We'll figure I'm it out honest. when we get there. We'll figure it out. We'll just roll some dice. We need to call so our mate Alison. So there's something. Well, we haven't mentioned food yet. I want to know what you'd want to eat. In fact, what what's what that could be the most important question. You know, mm, what are you having for yeah. dinner tonight? Well, tonight I'm going to Kathleen De Leon and Daniel Jones's Christmas. You are event. such a name dropper. It's brilliant. such a name dropper. Hey, look, I think they're the only famous true. people. I think they're the only famous people on the Gold Coast, anyway. But, but uh, please say hi. They, I will. Um, so, um, so I don't, I, I don't know, but I know they'll have. Last year, I go to this every year, and it's so fantastic. And last year, they had just all of these beautiful all of these all this food just brought out throughout the night so it's going to be a kind of stand-up drinks food eat till your face falls off kind of situation so i don't know but i know it's going to be amazing how divine and how it will divine. be plant-based <laughs> well yeah. i'll be looking forward to some photos on socials so that's going to be good you know you are seriously one of my favorite people in the entire world so thank you so much for being my very first, I was going to say victim, but, but I'll use the word. I'll use I the word guest. It was so great. I get it. Oh, yeah, um, I I feel like you've been my victim and having to sit through hearing me talk about myself for uh, the last. I love how long it. Has this been? It's been a while. I love it. Oh, it's been oh, years. Um, it's, been it's never enough. No, seriously. I love Thank you. you. Thank you, thank you, it's and I love you too. My absolute pleasure. I think this is cool. You're doing this. I love it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Fun. Yeah, you're always. Well, it, it might not compete with what your evening is tonight, but um, yeah, I'll look forward to some Let's more see. stories when we do part two. Right. Hopefully, I don't fall in the swimming pool. Or just make sure somebody's know, filming it. That. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. You have to walk up steps to get to the swimming pool, so that won't happen. It's a natural Phew. diving cross, board. We can cross that. We can cross that off the list. <laughs> <laughs> you are hysterical. Thank you, Troy Woodcraft. Love you. I told you he was a gorgeous soul. My biggest thanks to Troy. I absolutely loved having this chat with him. Also to my producer, Damien Foyerhart, and especially to you for taking some time to hang out with me. I look forward to talking about all the things when we next catch up. <laughs>